And if you uh, take out this sermon note sheet, if you like to do this, uh, if you're at home and you have the worship resources and are watching, on, watching online, you can take out these resources. And we're going to cheat a bit, and I'm going to give you a few answers ahead of time. Uh, it's kind of like reading the last pages of a book um, from the very beginning. And, uh, you know, it's kind of cheating, but that's what we're going to do today. So last three lines. Here we go. Your calling is fulfilled at God's timing. God will get the glory in your calling. God uses all things for good always. Um, and you might say, well, Pastor, why don't we just do this every Sunday? You just give us the answers and we'll leave, go home early. Um, well, not today, I'm afraid. So we're going to mention these things in the sermon. They're just not going to appear kind of like in headline fashion uh, um, or highlight fashion. But you'll, you'll see how they connect as we look at our story today. It's Genesis chapter 41, verses 46 through 57. And here we go. It's about Joseph. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from Pharaoh's presence and traveled throughout Egypt. During the seven years of abundance, the land produced plentifully. Joseph collected all the food produced in those seven years of abundance in Egypt and stored it in the cities. In each city, he put the food grown in the fields surrounding it. And Joseph stored up huge quantities of grain like the sand of the sea. It was so much that he stopped keeping records because it was beyond measure. Before the years of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph by Asenath, daughter of Potipharah, a priest of On. Joseph named his firstborn Manasseh and said, It is because God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. The second son, he named Ephraim and said, It is because God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. The seven years of abundance in Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began just as Joseph had said. There was famine in all the lands, all other lands, but in the whole land of Egypt, there was food. When all Egypt began to feel the famine, the people cried to Pharaoh for food, and then Pharaoh told all the Egyptians, go to Joseph and do what he tells you. When the famine had spread over the whole country, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold grain to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe throughout Egypt, and all the world came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was severe everywhere. Now we're in this series, Let Your Life Speak. It's about calling, um, your calling. And just as a reminder, um, last week we talked about how God um, shapes this calling that he has given you by giving you compassion for certain people, not that you are cold-hearted towards anyone, but there are some people in particular that your heart's just kind of drawn towards, and you have compassion for them. And God has given you a passion to set certain things right that you see that are wrong. It could be hunger. It could be loneliness. Uh, it could be um, when, when you see life threatened and right to life is important to you. You see something wrong, you want to make it right. could be abuse. You see something wrong, you want to make it right. We just had um, uh, many people from our church 
few wearing orange shirts come back from Louisiana because they have a heart for going and serving people who have lost possessions um, with the with the the hurricanes, and they went out to do a day of service. They want to take something right, uh, take something wrong, and make it right. So God gives you compassion and passion, and He shapes this calling that He has given you. Every person, every Christian, has given you a calling. So today we're going to talk about another important way that God shapes our calling. And truth be told, it doesn't seem like good news, even though it is. And it is this. This is the way that God shapes our calling. God uses crisis to clarify your calling. Not only does God use crisis to clarify your calling, crisis very often, is the main training ground God gives you to prepare you for a calling. It's crisis. That's your training ground. Um, I hope this comes across as relevant today, this morning. You know, 2020, that's a, you know, if you have not found this year um, to be anything in, you know, acutely particular, at least you've been finding it difficult, right? You could at least say it's kind of a difficult year. Um, Election season, difficult time. Before, during, after. I mean, you might be thinking, wow, this, is, this just doesn't feel like we're all pulling together, does it? Difficult time, difficult year. Difficulty is our training ground that God has given us. So I trust that this year is one in particular where God is preparing Christians to carry out their calling. Now we're looking at Joseph. Uh, And so that we can set the stage for this chapter that we read, or this passage from chapter 41, let's remember some of the key events that has led up to this. And let me confess often, when I'm um, reading Genesis through, when I get to chapter 37, it's my inclination just to kind of skip ahead a few chapters. Chapter 37 introduces Joseph, and for four chapters. It reads like something Shakespeare would have written and not like a fun thing like a Midsummer Night's Dream, but rather like King Lear, you know, a real family tragedy. And I just like to skip ahead um, over the gory details. Um, But let's remember some of just the awful family tragedy details. uh, Chapter 37 introduces us to Joseph as a 17-year-old boy. He is the youngest of all his brothers, save one, and he is daddy's favorite. And if you are a four- or five-year-old growing up in church, uh, you likely know Joseph um, for a famous article of clothing, this coat that he receives as a gift from his father. And um, four- or five-year-olds are put through a, just a ritual a Sunday school ritual. It's a, an event. One day you get a photocopied picture of some black and white coat that is apparently Joseph's. And you're handed some crayons, and they color with the crayons the coat. And as your four- and five-year-old, you don't color it black or brown or a nice shade of tan, right? You use all the colors because it's a coat of many colors. And he's given that coat from his father Jacob as a sign that Jacob favors Joseph over his brothers. 
It's kind of interesting that we celebrate that coat as a four- and five-year-old. That's how we know Joseph. The symbol of his favorite son status. Right after Jacob gives Joseph the coat, verse 4 of chapter 37 says this, When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Now, let me just point out that that doesn't happen in a vacuum, right? It's not like everyone thing is great between Joseph and his brothers. Dad gives Joseph the coat of many colors, and all of a sudden his brothers are hating his guts, right? That doesn't happen in a vacuum. This has been ongoing, this, this rift between Joseph and his brothers. And you know as well as I do that Joseph isn't innocent in all of this. He's, he's not wondering, why do my brothers hate me so much, right? He's has this competitive agenda with his brothers as well, because that's how rifts often happen with brothers. And early in the Joseph story, we find out that God has a calling for Joseph, which he reveals in a series of dreams. And Joseph tells his brothers, Hey, brothers, let me tell you about this dream that I just had. We were all harvesting sheaves of grain, and my sheaf all of a sudden stood upright, straight. And guess what? All of your sheaves, they gather around it and they bow down low to it. I was wondering, what do you think that means, brothers? Because I don't know. I'm just wondering. And while you're answering that, let me tell you about another dream that I just had. The sun, the moon, 11 stars started bowing down to me. Hey, how many of you are there? 11? Huh. Now, the Bible doesn't say that Joseph told them what the dreams meant. And he didn't have to, did he? They knew what he thought. They knew that Joseph thought that, this, that he, the younger brother, was going to lord it over them someday. And the story goes that his brothers hated him all the more for it. And then one day Joseph was called by his father to go check on his brothers because they were out tending the sheep and had begun away for some time. And so he goes out. In chapter 37, verse 18 says that Joseph goes out to see his brothers. But they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. So imagine this scene. How far off was Joseph? It was in the distance, but how far off? So you look at the, the, the Hebrew language. And the Hebrew says he was off a far distance, a far way off. And his brothers plotted. And their plotting probably didn't go something like this. Hey, here comes Joseph. Hey, let's kill him. What do you think? Yeah, great idea. It probably didn't go down like that. It probably took maybe a little more deliberation, you think, um, between the brothers. Maybe, Maybe let's give him at least... A few minutes, several minutes, right, to discuss this out. And yet they were able to, to, to have this deliberation because they saw Joseph a long way off. Now, what was it about Joseph where they could see him a long way off and notice that it was Joseph? That's right. He was not coming wearing the, the brown tunic, but the cloak, the coat of many brilliant colors. Just another sign Joseph was flaunting to his brothers over his superiority over them. So in the end, they decide instead of killing him to beat him up and to sell him into slavery to this Midianite merchant train that that was traveling nearby. And here's what uh, 
verse 28 says, So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern where they had thrown him and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. Um, so who, who is Ishmael? Ishmael is Abraham's other son, right? He's the not Isaac son. He's the, the son not of the covenant. He's the son not of God's people. And so what is this little detail pointing out that, that Joseph is going away with not God's people, right? Just, just put yourself in Joseph's position. He was, he was flying high. He was on top in the family pecking order of things, he thought. Favorite son, beautiful, ornate robe given to him. And now he's bloodied, beaten, carried away by not God's people. And from a worldly perspective, God is nowhere in sight. But the Bible is very clear that God is is very much present. God is not nowhere in sight. He's right there with Joseph. And he's somehow orchestrating this valley season for Joseph because he's given him a calling. And God clarifies our calling through crisis. And God leads Joseph through a series of losses so he can form a very important character into Joseph. So loss one was being sold into slavery, ultimately being carried off to Egypt. And then comes loss two. He is falsely accused by his master, oh, to his master, of making sexual advances on his master's wife. And so Joseph's master, his owner, has him thrown into prison. So that's loss two. Falsely accused, thrown in prison. But again, the story makes it clear that God has not abandoned Joseph, but is right there with him and is working things out towards a purpose. Because in this particular prison, just so happens, just so happens to be two of the king's servants, the cupbearer and the baker, with whom Pharaoh, king of Egypt, has become very angry. And in time the cupbearer and the baker have dreams of their own, and they share them with Joseph. And the cupbearer shares a dream. Joseph says, well, this is what this dream means. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head, and you will be restored to your position in the king's service. Well, thanks a lot, the cupbearer says. That's great. Joseph says, just please do this. Remember me to Pharaoh when you get back into service. No problem. No problem, Joseph. And the baker shares his dream with Joseph. And Joseph says, this is what your dream means. In three days, Pharaoh will lift off your head and impale your body on the pole. Well, thanks for nothing, Joseph. The baker at least thinks. And, and, and here's the remarkable thing. The cupbearer, he is restored to his position of power. And the baker is beheaded and impaled on a pole, just as Joseph um, says. And um, the cupbearer is back in Pharaoh's service, and then he remembers Joseph to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh lets Joseph out of prison. 
Isn't that what happens? No, that's not what happens, right? That's not what happens. Then comes loss three. Loss three. For two years, the cupbearer forgets all about Joseph, and Joseph remains in prison. So Joseph has now been gone away from his father for 13 years. How long have you been waiting for something that you've really counted on? Maybe you've been at the same position at work and there's no movement upward and there's no movement that you can imagine down the future getting you where you want to go. Maybe it's been that way for a long time. Or maybe you've just been sitting with not a clear sense of direction for quite some time now. I don't know what I want to do with my life. Or maybe you're thinking of a, a change in jobs, a change in career path. Things just haven't opened up. Or maybe you're waiting on an important relationship. There's been some fracture, and you've done what you can to smooth things over and to reconcile, and maybe it'll happen, maybe it won't. You're not sure. You're just waiting. You're waiting. Maybe you're waiting in a change of health. Maybe you don't like your location, your direction, your situation. Anyone been waiting for a while? Anyone been waiting here? Joseph waited for 13 years. And one lesson is this. Don't give up in your waiting. Don't give up. Don't think that God is absent in your waiting because he's right there and he is working things out for his good purpose. So circumstances are about to change for for Joseph because uh, after these two years, additional years of being in prison, Pharaoh, Pharaoh himself has Two dreams. So two dreams for Joseph. Two dreams for the king's servants. Two dreams for the king himself. It's clear that God is in charge, isn't it? There's no, there's, there's no coincidences in these stories, is there? No coincidences. No, no, nothing happens by happenstance here. And no one can interpret Pharaoh's dreams. And then all of a sudden, the cupbearer remembers, oh, I am so sorry. There was someone I was supposed to tell you about two years ago. He remembers. It's interesting. What if the cupbearer had remembered Joseph two years prior and told Pharaoh immediately about him? Have you ever thought about that? What would have happened? And it could be that, that Pharaoh would have released Joseph from prison and and maybe Joseph would have, have made his way back to Canaan to his father, have a nice Jacob-Joseph reunion. Maybe Joseph would have found a way to smooth things over with his brothers. That would have been a nice ending, right? That would have, that would have been kind of a, a happy ending to the story. But if that had happened, there would be no one to interpret Pharaoh's dreams two years later. You see, God had a much better and bigger ending in mind. 
And it just so happened that Joseph was exactly where Pharaoh could find him to interpret his dreams. So Joseph appears before Pharaoh and says, I hear, Pharaoh tells him, I hear you are the right man to interpret my dreams. And listen, for years, Joseph had heard that he was the right man, right? He was the favorite son. Dad told him that over and over again, with or without words. Here's a nice coat, Joseph. Joseph, for years, knew that he had been the right man. He had boasted of that to his brothers by sharing his dreams. Joseph was the man. He was the BMOC, big man on campus, right? But not now. Not now. Look at what Joseph says to Pharaoh next. Joseph, I hear you're the man to, to answer my dreams. I cannot do it, Joseph replied to Pharaoh. I, I, can, I cannot do it. But God will. I can't. But God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. So notice this change that has taken place in Joseph. He's, he's humble. He's, he's faithful. And this all leads up to what we read earlier in Genesis chapter 41. Joseph interprets two dreams, or God interprets the dreams through Joseph. And forecasts that there'll be seven years of abundant harvest, just kind of gangbuster harvests and growth, followed by seven years of severe famine. And then Joseph suggests a plan. He says, you know what? Someone ought to be managing over this and store up all this grain for seven years so that it'll last during the seven years of famine. And Pharaoh says, great idea, Joseph, and you're going to do it. And he puts Joseph second in charge of all of Egypt. And it's here that we see that God's call is finally beginning to be fulfilled in Joseph, right? He collected all the abundant harvest for the first seven years. And in the second seven years, there people, people will eat throughout the famine. Look at verse 57 again. And all the world came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was severe everywhere and included in the people from all over who were coming to Joseph two years into the famine were his brothers who sold him into slavery. And by now, his dreams, the original dreams that Joseph had, were 22 years old. 22 years old. And they're finally getting fulfilled. But in a way that Joseph never would have anticipated. See, Joseph is no longer the arrogant, cocky leader of his brothers, but through this valley season that God led him through, with God working on his heart, this new Joseph is this humble, faithful leader of his brothers. And you remember what Joseph does in the end with his brothers. He forgives them. Now that's the good ending that God had in mind. The world saved from hunger. That's a, that's a pretty good ending, right? Through Joseph. And there is a lot of that story that's hard to relate with because of that, right? Um... You know, it's hard for us to see ourselves all of a sudden go from prison to second in command of the most powerful nation on the planet at that time. That's, that's just not 
something that we identify ourselves with. But there is something we can all relate to with this story because everybody has a dream. You've got a dream. And in that dream, you have a calling. It may not be clear how that calling from God is connected to this this heart's passion, this desire of yours. But Joseph had this dream to be lording it over his brothers, and little does he know that the way he'll wind up doing that is through saving people from worldwide famine. Sometimes it's hard to see how that calling is connected to that dream. And at the moment, today, you got this calling. But you might not yet be ready to carry out that calling, or timing might not yet be right to carry out that calling. So how does God get us ready? God's greatest growth in us happens through difficulty. And we probably wish that weren't the case. We probably wish that the greatest growth in us came down an easier road. But that's just, it's true. It's true. And why is it true that our greatest growth happens during difficulty? Because it's in difficulty that God can work on our hearts. And that's what God is after more than anything, is your heart. God was after Joseph's heart. And there is something that only difficulty can bring. It's in difficulty that we learn to look to the Lord and trust him alone. It's in difficulty that we realize, okay, I don't have hope here. 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 I certainly don't have hope in here, but I do have hope right there in God, in God. It's in difficulty that we learn to, to lean on our trust in the Lord and not on our circumstances. And, and, and those lessons just cannot be learned during success or ease. They, they just cannot be learned during success or ease. So a good saying, it's been said before, maybe in slightly different words than this, but here's a good saying. How you deal with difficulty will shape how you handle success. How you deal with difficulty. And this is the lesson that God wants Joseph to learn. How he deals with difficulty will shape how you deal with success, how Joseph dealt with his success. Joseph learned how to handle success without losing any of his reliance on the Lord. You know, he's very successful. He's gathered up so much food, he just kind of loses count. He's like, I don't know how many bags that is. That's a gazillion bags of food that I just have stored up. It's beyond measure. Very successful. And yet, who does he give the glory to? He gives the glory to. All to God. Look at verses 51 and 52 again. 51. Uh, Joseph named his firstborn Manasseh and said, It is because God has made me forget all of my trouble and my father's household. And the second son he named Ephraim and said, It is because God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. And there's a great part of, of Christian growth that can only take place through facing adversity and, and suffering. You know, we would like to think it would be easier. We'd like to think, oh, you know, we can learn all these lessons through just attending some really good Bible studies, right? That we can learn all these lessons by hearing some really good sermons or by uh, 
going to some Sunday school classes. That's we wish we wish we could learn the the big lessons like that, but it's just not that easy. Let me give you an example. How about learning to love your enemies? How do you learn how to how to do that? You open to 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and learn about what love is? Maybe, I mean that may give you a few pointers, but does that help you lo- to love your enemies? Just read the Sermon on the Mount and read it over and over and over again? Does that help you? No, that's not. That, that might help give you a few pointers, but it, that doesn't help you learn how to love your enemies. Uh, how do you learn how to love your enemies? Well, it's when you go through suffering that God starts softening your heart. For example, it's when I go through personal failure that I realize that the same kind of ills, the same kind of limitations and shortcomings that I see in others, the same kind of even uh, uh, evils even that I see in others, that makes me think, they're my enemy. It's when I go through personal failures that I realize all of that stuff, it's in me as well. I'm the failure. In other words, it's through my own failures and brokenness that I can recognize the humanity that I share with others instead of feeling superior to others. And God softens my heart to love my enemies because I realize, wow, they're not that much different than me after all. So that's one example of how God uses suffering, valley seasons, failures, to train us, to teach us how to obey. I, w- I, wanna, I, want you to, I want you to think about this scripture that I'm about to put up here. It's in Hebrews chapter 5, verses 8 through 9. There's some mystery in these verses, but I, I want to make a point from them. Look at Hebrews 5, verses 8 through 9. It's talking about Jesus. Son though he was, Jesus learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Somehow, Jesus learned obedience through his suffering. I don't know all how that happened with the Son of God, how he learned obedience through his suffering. And Jesus was without sin. And that word perfect, by the way, the end of, uh, or the middle of verse 9, of course that means... He uh, was made complete. He was, he was brought to completion, to, to his, his, his end, the, the, the end that God had for him, his, his purpose. He reached his end purpose. And, of course, that end purpose is, is him dying on the cross in order to reconcile people with God. If Jesus had to go through suffering to learn to be obedient and to be carried to his purpose, his end, and he was without sin? What makes us think that we can reach God's purpose for our lives without suffering as well? I want you to just take a moment to acknowledge your suffering. And there's a wide range represented here this morning, anywhere from body aches and pains to distress at work, maybe feeling like your work is is not being uh, valued. Maybe you feel threatened. 
in your occupation. Maybe you feel devalued. Maybe, maybe it's emotional suffering. Uh, you're just deeply unhappy for whatever the, the many possible causes are. You're just, just unhappy. Maybe you're stretched financially thin, and it's a real strain. Uh, friends, this is a good time to remember. Just as we said ago with the Heidelberg Catechism, that our lives are not our own, but we belong body and soul in life and in death to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. This is a good time for that. And if you're thinking for one second that God has taken his hands off the driving wheel, the steering wheel of your life, think again, for he has not, not for a moment. You may be waiting, but God is not. God is working while you're waiting. He is working in your life to make you complete and ready for the purpose that he has for you. And according to his timetable, when you are ready and when things are ready and others are ready, scenarios are ready, God is going to open up a door for you to send you out complete on your mission to carry out his calling. A calling that you may have received a long time ago, and it was 22 years for Joseph. So, this morning, stay strong. And one day, you'll be able to say two things, just like Joseph did, and we'll end with these two things. What Joseph realized when he named his two sons, you will be able to say, God, you have made me forget all my trouble. It's all in the past. You'll be able to say that. And you will be able to say, God, you have made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. Heavenly Father, you are always with us. I think of what you said to the older brother in that, in that little story, that, the, the, the uh, prodigal son story, what you s- said to this broken-hearted older brother, person in the story, I'm always with you. You're always with me. All that I have is yours. Lord, we pray that you would Help us hear those reassuring words this morning. You are with us in all that you have. It is ours. And you have not abandoned us in the land of suffering. You are with us and you are working and you are moving and you are creating and you are shaping and you are opening a door for us to boldly go through and be witnesses of the gospel of Jesus Christ and to show this world that Jesus is alive and he is Lord. And he is setting all things right. And as we consider our calling, Lord, we pray that you would give us patience, give us strength, give us courage and compassion, and make us always ready to do what we can to take something that's wrong and make it right for the sake of Jesus Christ. Amen.